You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. All right, well, good morning. It was January of 1977, a small startup uh, officially incorporated, started out of Cupertino, California by two men, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. The company called themselves Apple Computer Company. How many of you have heard of them? Right. Yeah, they're only taking over the world. Their goal uh, was to mass produce a home computer based on a prototype that was handmade by Steve Wozniak himself. The prototype they named Apple One. It was to be a blueprint to be mass produced into a computer that the average everyday person could then buy and use from the comfort of their own home. They cleverly called this mass produced computer Apple II. Uh, April of 1977, Apple II debuted at the West Coast Computer Fair uh, and, and just shocked the world. What a remarkable venture uh, that this company was taking. In June of 1977, It hits the market to uh, mass success, solidifying them as a real market threat in the computer and tech world. 1977 was a big year. It gave people hope for a futuristic tomorrow. But prior to this, there was really no uh, concept of, of having your own computer in your home. And, 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 and now this company was, was making that possible. What seemed impossible became possible. There was hope for people for this futuristic tomorrow. And the crazy part is that's not even the most popular thing in 1977 that, that spoke to hope. That honor belongs to a small, poorly funded, independent science fiction film that we know as Star Wars. Yeah. Of course, we know it today as Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, but at the time, 77, when it came out, it was just Star Wars. And the movie, if you haven't seen it, which who are you if you haven't seen it, uh, is about an evil empire and its crushing grip on the people of the universe who are given hope when a band of rebels infiltrates the Death Star, rescues a princess, and blows the whole thing up. What seemed impossible, defeating the empire, became possible. It was a new hope for the people of the universe. I think in a lot of ways, that's what hope is all about for people. It's the possibility of something happening that they really want to happen. So and we use this word a lot, right, in our English vernacular to, to convey this, this very definition. We'll say things around Christmas time like, I really hope I get that thing that I asked for. Right? Or when it's late at night and you remember, oh, I don't have the thing that I need to pack my kids' lunch tomorrow, or I don't have the thing I need to bring to work tomorrow, and you think, I hope I can get to the store before it closes. Or, or you're about to leave on vacation and you think to yourself, because you just heard that your friends are all sick, I hope I don't get sick before I go on vacation. These are fairly shallow examples of the way we think about conceptualize hope, but, but it, it is true. It's how, it's how we use this terminology. Even in more serious situations, though, hope is very appealing, isn't it? We live in a world where things don't always go our way, where relationships sometimes fail, where people we love get sick and die, where we lose things that matter to us. We, we love hope because it provides some reprieve from the pain that we experience in our lives because though our circumstances may feel impossible, hope is the reminder that the impossible can become possible. But, and this might surprise some of you, this is not at all what biblical hope is about. 
Biblical hope is not about the impossible becoming possible. It's about the impossible becoming probable. Biblical hope is not about possibility. It's about certainty. It's about confident certainty, something that you can confidently expect to happen. Hope overwhelmingly in the New Testament is expressed the Greek term elpis. It's a word that means something like to look forward to something with reason for confidence of fulfillment. There is an idea of reasonable, confident expectation. And there's a reason for this. Biblical hope is powerful, not because we have a lot of faith as Christians. In fact, I mean, I would argue that in moments where you need hope, those are most often some of your most faithless times. It's why you need hope. So it's not that biblical hope is powerful because of our ability to hope, but because of the object we place our hope in, which is namely Jesus. Listen to me. This is a truth that I want you to, to really wrap your minds around before we jump into the, the various texts this morning. Hope is only as powerful as its object. Hope is only as powerful as its object. If you hope the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl, you will be miserable for the rest of your life. <laughs> the object of your hope will fail you every single year until Jesus returns. <laughs> Go Cowboys. Uh, you, what you place your hope in, that thing determines the level of confidence you can have in the hope to begin with. And, and so for us, our object of hope as Christians is Christ, and specifically his glorious second coming, his return. That's something we can have confident hope in because God is a God of, of faithfulness. He's a God of goodness, and, and, and he holds true to his promises. So my goal this morning is to encourage you, especially those of you who are in the midst of a particularly difficult season of life. Some of you are facing really hard circumstances right now. I want to remind you from the Bible of this hope that we have as Christians that one day Christ will return. He'll put an end to suffering. He will wipe away every tear, and he will establish perfect peace and justice in the earth. That is something we can look forward to with confident expectation. So my title this morning is An Old Hope, a hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ nearly 2,000 years ago. And I want to say up front that this message this morning is a little bit different than usual. Usually I'm a verse-by-verse -verse kind of guy. Uh, I like to just jump into a text, walk through it, and then go to the next one the next week, right? But for this morning, for our purposes, we are going to look to get a fuller picture of a sort of a systematic view of hope at a lot of different texts this morning. And we're going to need to hear from Paul and Mick and Peter and Brian and Lamont and Eddie and Ambrose and David. <laughs> Here's the thing that you need to know, the first thing you need to know about hope. Hope only exists in a world where you don't get what you want. Hope only exists in a world where you don't get what you want. If you have your Bibles, open them to Romans 8 to begin with. And in the eighth chapter of Romans, Paul lays out this incredible vision of this future glory that every single Christian is guaranteed. At verse 18, I think, really sets the stage for us. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us immediately. Paul establishes two things that are true for his context and two things that are true for our context as well. And that is, number one, the present world is full of suffering, but number two, there is a glorious future that far surpasses the present suffering for Christians. 
He's saying that right now, things are hard, life is hard, but the glory that is waiting for every Christian is so grand, it's not even worth comparing the two. You have things happening in your life right now that are just unspeakably hard, right? Things in your past, unspeakably hard, that you will take a lifetime to try to recover from. And as bad as they are, they're not even worth comparing for the future glory that you have when Christ returns. It's hard now, but there is hope for a future. That means right now, If you are a Christian, no matter how bad things are for you, no matter how much you've suffered, no matter how much loss you've occurred, no matter how many relationships you've destroyed, no matter how much damage has been done from your own sin or addiction or bad choices, there is coming a day of immeasurable glory for you that far surpasses anything that you've currently experienced. And then get this, that reality is the anchor upon which our hope hangs. And that leads to the next verses. Paul says, it's not just you who is suffering. It's not just you who longs for future glory, but all of creation is suffering and longs for future glory. Verse 19, he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, creation was subjected to futility and not willingly. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with pains of childbirth until now. Childbirth is painful. I don't know that from experience. I was present when Jess was doing all of the work and it did not look easy. And it gets worse. The longer labor lasts, the closer you get to childbirth, the pain increases. That is what Paul is saying with regard to creation. Creation is in pain. It's writhing in pain. It is laboring as it is in childbirth and it longs for the day when this pain will stop. And then we get to verse 24 and this is the big point. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Did you catch that? He's saying that if the solution to your problems is right in front of you and available to you, you don't need hope. Hope only exists in a world where you don't get what you want. Hope only exists in a world when there is not a present solution to your problems. If you can reach out and grab the solution to the thing that you are struggling with, you don't need to hope. You just need to grab the thing that you need to fix your problems. If you can have it, there's no need for hope. Listen to me, you have the promise of God for a future glory when Christ returns. One day, the world will live and operate as it was intended. It will live and breathe in perfect peace and perfect shalom according to God's perfect design. It will be glorious, but that day is not today. There is a lie in Christianity that if you just have enough faith, God's going to heal, fix, or change all of your problems, and you're going to have this perfect, great little life. It's up to you, but if you just can conjure the faith, then God will do for you what you desire. That is nowhere in the Bible. You live in a world that is broken. Things are not the way they should be. People are not the way they should be. Look at me. You are not the way you should be. That doesn't change based on how much positivity you have, how much false joy you can conjure, how much shallow optimism you think you have. You live in a world where you don't get what you want. And the Bible tells us in the midst of this suffering, we can look towards future hope that God is going to return and it is gonna be so glorious, it's not even worth comparing the present moment that you are sitting and suffering in. That in the present suffering, God will lead you, he will not forsake you, and he will provide for you until he calls you home. But things are not going to be perfect. 
but he will care for you. In other words, as the great philosopher Mick Jagger once said, <laughs> you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. Man, you were a bunch of heathens. You knew the words. You knew the words. If you're a guest, you're thinking, is this guy serious? I am. So I might amend this first point a little bit. Instead of hope only exists in a world where you don't get what you want, I think we can confidently say as Christians, hope only exists in a world where you don't get what you want, but you still get what you need. Amen? Here's the second thing you need to know about hope. Hope only exists in a world where we don't belong. Next, we turn to Peter. Peter wrote uh, a whole book in the Bible centered on hope. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter talks a lot about hope. If, if you could synthesize this letter down into one singular subject, it would be for certain hope, and most specifically, a living hope. He begins this letter uh, with a reminder for why we feel as Christians so out of place in the world. It's because we are. It's because we don't belong here. And using imagery from the Old Testament, this is what 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2 says. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All throughout the letter... And even throughout the rest of the New Testament, Christians are often referred to as elect. This is a big word. It's a hot-button topic, which makes really no sense to me because it's not even an interpretive issue. It's just literally the word, elect. Those who are called out by God, those who belong in this category, this group, the world, who are called out of the world and into glory, redeemed, redemption by the blood of Jesus. They are the elect. But notice here, it's not just the elect that Peter refers to us as, but rather the elect exiles. This is an Old Testament terminology, imagery, that refers all the way back to the Babylonian exile that began starting in 597 BC under the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the exile was a period of time when the people of God, understand this, after having been warned over and over again to repent of their sins by the prophets, were disciplined by the hand of God. They were removed from their land and taken into exile, first by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians were overtaken by the Persians. They lived, the people of God, in a foreign land under a foreign king in the midst of a foreign people who spoke a foreign language and worshipped foreign false gods. This is an extremely difficult time for the people of God who were used to enjoying Judah and the temple and Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David. I mean, this is, they're the people of the covenant and the statutes and all these things. And now they've been taken from their promised land and thrown into exile, into foreign territory where nothing was what they were used to and where they were seen as outsiders. It was an extremely difficult time. They felt out of place because they were out of place. Their life was offensive to the Babylonians. You remember Daniel? Daniel chapter 1, if you want to go over there for a minute. Daniel and his friends uh, lived during this Babylonian captivity. They were constantly a problem for the people around them. They, first, they wouldn't drink or eat any of the king's food, the Babylonian food. Daniel 1.8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So I'm not going to eat your food, not going to drink your drink. Later, he's asked to bow before a golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, and he refused, even knowing this is probably going to lead to my death. 
Beyond that, Daniel and his friends represented the brightest young minds of Israel. Uh, it, it talks about how they were, they were handsome and they were well-educated and they were bright and they were quick to learn and they, they presented themselves well, they spoke well. They represented the bright future, the bright hope of Israel. And in chapter one, it says, because of that, they were gathered together and they were sent to be re-educated. The Babylonians thought, if we can teach them our language and our culture and our way of doing things and how to worship our gods, Maybe they'll forget their culture and their God. Maybe they won't remember their heritage and they won't be such a nuisance to us anymore. Life in the exile was hard. The people of God were always up against problems. They were always in the way. What they believed was offensive. How they lived was offensive. So Peter is using this historic reality and he's applying it to the present tense. He's saying, you who belong to Jesus, you are elect exiles. In the same way that Daniel and the Israelites were, you now as Christians are exiles. You don't belong here. Your way of life is offensive. You live in a foreign land of people who speak a foreign language, of foreign leaders who worship foreign gods. And, and you are going to be pressured to be conformed into the image of this world. Your opinions about truth and morality, they're wrong in the worldly context, specifically in the context of sexual identity, the, the sanctity of human life, just to name a couple of real hot button current issues. It's, it's not only going to be out of place for you to think what you think about these things, it's going to be offensive and they're going to hate you for it. So life is going to be hard for you. It's going to be difficult. They're going to try to make you compromise on the things that matter. They're gonna to try to get you to compromise on morality. They're gonna to try to get you to bow down to false idols. They're gonna take your young people. They're gonna to attempt to re-educate them to get them to forget and forsake their heritage as Christians. So you must stand firm is what Peter is saying. Hold on to hope. In fact, he goes on verse three. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at me. You live in a world that is not your own. It is hostile. It hates you. It hates what you believe. It hates the God you worship. It hates the Savior that you praise. It will do everything in its power to distract you with things that don't matter, to entrap you in your sin and shame and try to get you to forsake Jesus, walk away from it all. But understand this. You're an elect exile not because you chose to be, but because he chose you out of the world. He caused you to be born again to a living hope. It is Christ who draws us in, and it is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that is the vessel through which we receive this living hope. So look, it may get hostile for you. People may take their shots at you. People will probably mock you for the things that you believe. And because of that, you're gonna feel like you don't belong here because you don't belong here. But even in a world, especially in a world where you don't belong, hope exists. Not because of anything that you've done, but because what have Christ has done for you. Now with that said, let me give you some encouragement because that sounds fairly drab. You are elect exiles, plural. You belong to the church, to the body of Christ. Just because you live in a world where you don't belong doesn't mean you live in the world alone. You're not alone. Your fellow exiles and fellow sufferers in the body of Christ who come alongside you, who come alongside one another and suffer together. I think of the words of Lamont Dozer and Brian and Eddie Holland. 
Many of you may not know those names. You have almost certainly heard of their songs. They wrote a prolific amount of Motown music in the 1950s and 60s, one of which is one of my favorite songs of all time. It was popularized by Levi Stubbs and the Four Tops. It's a song called Reach Out, I'll Be There. And I think it captures well the sentiment of the church being the church to one another in the midst of a world where we don't belong. It's almost certainly not what the song is about, but I just like, it reminds me of the church when I hear it. It goes like this. Now, if you feel that you can't go on because all of your hope is gone and your life is filled with much confusion until happiness is just an illusion and your world around is crumbling down, darling, reach out. Come on, babe. And then he says this, I'll be there with a love that will shelter you. I'll be there with a love that will see you through. That to me is a picture of the church. When you feel alone and your life is crumbling down because you live in a world where you don't belong, the church rallies around you and says, hey, I'll be there to love you and shelter you. And you're going to do the same for me in my moments of despair. Hope only exists in a world where you don't belong, but that doesn't mean that you're alone. Hope is not meant to be held by one person, but by all the elect exiles of God. You are exiles. You belong to another kingdom. Your citizenship lies elsewhere. You're pilgrims. And this is the view of the early church. Ambrose of Milan, third century church father, talking about 1 Peter 1. He says, we are not the inhabitants of this world, but pilgrims. Pilgrims live in hope of finding a temporary lodging, but inhabitants seem to place every hope and every use of their goods where they believe they are living by right. That's why the world is so interested in establishing everything that they desire to happen now. But church, we're pilgrims. We're just passing through. We're, we're, we're exiles, we're sojourners, we're wanderers. We don't belong here. Our hope lies elsewhere in the future. So hope only exists in a world where you don't get what you want. There are going to be things that you desire to happen or don't desire to happen, and, and you're not going to get what you want. And so you need hope in those moments. Hope only exists in a world where you don't belong. You're going to feel like an outsider because you are. So you need hope for a future in your kingdom with your Lord. And last, hope only exists in a world where God reigns supreme. If you have your Bible, open it to the Old Testament, Psalms. Go to Psalm 42. We're going to end our time looking at David's words in this great, this great psalm that actually is the beginning portion of a well-known hymn or song of praise, I think, uh, is probably more accurate. Psalm 42, verses 1 through 3. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? David is describing a person who's suffering tremendously. He imagines a deer that's out in the wilderness, and it is frantically searching for water, for something to quench its thirst. And he's saying, this is how my soul feels towards God. I'm desperately in need of him. He goes on, he says, my tears have been my food. He's been filled with such sorrow that he cries for the duration of the day from morning until night so that he can't eat or that he can't drink. He's in a miserable state. He's so pathetic that people are mocking him. It says, where is your God now? They're mocking him. This is a person that's in such a bad place and, and, and he's resolved that there is no hope for this life. 
He's desolate. He's destitute. But then look at verse 5, and we're going to park here for a moment. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And here's the command. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Notice who he's talking to here. He's not talking to you. He's talking to his soul. He's having an inner pep talk with his inner person. How many of you have done that before? You're sad, you're suffering, you feel hopeless. You're like, man, come on, get it together, man. What are you doing? We got we to do this, right? Cheer up. You, you, you have to be able to, in those moments, speak objectively to yourself to pull yourself out sometimes. That's what David is doing here. He's speaking objectively to his soul. Now, here's the catch, and this is so important, so please hear this. You are, in and of yourself, not capable of speaking objectively to yourself. If you come at yourself and try to give yourself a pep talk based on your own opinions and feelings, you're going to give yourself the worst pep talk you've ever heard. It may cheer you up for a moment, but it's going to set you up for failure because you are subjective in every way. You're not capable of doing that. You need something to convey to yourself in a pep talk that is objective. Where do we find that? In the scripture, the promises of the eternal God. David is having a moment of crisis. He feels desperately disconnected from God. He feels hopeless. And so he has this pep talk with his soul. And what does he say? Hope in God. Why can he say this to himself? Because God is a God of hope. The Bible tells us that. That's a promise of God. That is true. It is objective. Paul refers to God in this way in Romans 15, 13. He says, the God of hope. In fact, uh, let's park here for a moment in Romans 15. There's a couple of ways in which we find hope according to this passage. Number one, we find hope in the present work of God. We find hope in the present work of God. He says in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That word abound in the Greek language, it's a word that means to be over and above, to be in abundance, something that is overflowing. It means that God's present work in your life as a Christian through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when you yield yourself to him, will fill you with joy and peace such that even in moments of great difficulty, you will not just have a little bit of hope in yourself, you'll be exploding with hope. You'll be overflowing with hope. So when you are struggling, speak objectively to yourself. Remind yourself of God's present work in your life, that through the Spirit, he's going to make you overflow with hope. We find that in the present work of God. But secondly, we find it in the past work of God as well. Look at verse 14. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul is saying we can trust in the present work of God. God is going to, he will make you overflow with hope. But even in moments when you feel doubtful, hopeless, when we question the present work of God, we can look back in the scriptures and we can see how God has done this again and again and again and again through the lives of countless people over the course of time. That's what David does in verse 4. Look at verse 4 of, of Psalm 42. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. There was, a, there was a time in David's life as the king of Israel where he would lead the people of God, the throng, that's a great word, uh, into the temple to worship. 
He was the principal worship leader of Israel as the king. He would lead them in and they would, they would sing songs of praise. They would sing, sing and shout songs of praise to Yahweh. And so at this point in his life where he is in crisis mode, as he's pouring out his soul, it says that he remembers, he looks back at the past work of God to remind himself of the goodness of God. So whenever I begin to doubt the goodness of God, when I begin to think God isn't going to fill me with his joy and his peace, I can look back at the countless people in scripture and I can see how God has again and again been faithful in those moments. I can even look back at my own life to past moments of clearly God's faithful provision to me. Sort of these core spiritual memories, to use the language of Inside Out, if you've ever seen the movie. These meaningful moments that establish something very core in the inward part of my being. There are these core spiritual moments that I can look back on and I know without a doubt, man, the presence of God, the work of God is so obvious here. And there's lots of them for me. There's lots of events that I can think back on where I'm like, that was the Lord. That was the Lord. One of them that I believe every Christian should have in common is the core spiritual memory of their baptism. Because in baptism, it's where we come before God, not in our own power, but because God has drawn us to him. And we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection through the waters of baptism in public proclamation that Christ is Lord and that I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that God raised him from the dead that I've been born again, that I've received the Spirit. And so moments of doubt, I can look back on that baptism and I can go, man, I feel really bad right now, but I remember that day. I remember the Lord working in my life. I remember the church being gathered around me as I went under the waters of judgment and out in the newness of life. And as it happens, we get to celebrate that this morning. Yes. So we're gonna call them up. These are core spiritual memories that these people are making today that we get to be a part of as their church family. And, and I want to set this up um, as, as well as I can. Um, the two people being baptized today uh, were, were going to be baptized sort of as a surprise to their friends and family here. And both of them had no idea the other one was going to be baptized until this week. And so here we are. Um, Ladies first. Let's do Sharon first. We're Southern gentlemen here. You got this. This is Sharon. Say hi, Sharon. Hi. Sharon's been coming here for, gosh, since just before Easter. Good Friday, I think, is when you guys first started coming around. And uh, Sharon leads a ministry. She is uh, just a tremendous uh, woman. And through discussion in the discovery class, realized, you know, I don't know that I've ever had biblical baptism. And uh, through much of the Spirit's work in her life, she is here. Sharon, I want you to look around. I want you to look at your people specifically for a minute. Your people here. Do you believe that Jesus really lived, that he really died and he really rose again? Have you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that he is Lord? Well then, by that public profession of faith, we baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Awesome. Chris, you know what time it is. I also want to make you guys aware, who were not here during the first service, that we also baptized Kimon Thomas this morning. Yeah. All right, Chris, come on down. And I want you to do the same thing I asked Sharon to do. I want you to look back once you get seated, and I want you to see the people that God has brought into your life that are meaningful to you, that are here for you. They're here cheering you on. Do you believe that Jesus really lived, that he really died, and that he really rose again? Do you believe that he is Lord? Yes. That God raised him from the dead? Yes. And by your public profession of faith, we baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are core spiritual memories. These are things that they're going to look back on. They're going to have, listen, y'all are going to have times of trouble and doubt and hurt and pain and loss, and you're going to look back on this day, and you're going to remember God's work in your life. And for many of you out here today, you may be thinking, I don't know that I've ever been baptized. And, and if that's the case, you've never really been truly biblically baptized, truly biblically born again. We're going to give you a moment here. We're going to pray, and I'm going to just give you a couple moments of silence to sit and go before God and consider what's preventing you from giving your life to Jesus this morning? What's preventing you from confessing that you are a sinner in need of a savior? God is so good, he's so forgiving. There's nothing, listen to me, there's nothing you've ever done that you can't be forgiven for. There's nothing that you've ever done that you couldn't confess in this church that we probably haven't heard of, that most of us probably aren't guilty of. You're safe here. You're safe here. So we're going to pray and give you a moment to go before God, and then I'll close this out in prayer. Gracious God, I pray for those this morning who are perhaps really wrestling with this question of, do I belong to you? Have I been running from you? I pray that you give them the courage this morning to face that question head on. And God, if they have been running from you, that they would submit themselves. They would bow in submission before you. Quit running, quit hiding for the first time in their life, give their life to you. Receive your spirit, receive your forgiveness. Be set free, made new, born again, given true hope. Pray that this message, these passages, that this idea of hope would be for some in this room 
like a warm embrace that just encourages them in their spirit, reminds them of your goodness in their lives, and, and that perhaps for others it would be like a, like a slap in the face, a wake-up call, that they would repent and believe and be added into the family of God and soon brought into these same waters as a public profession to form that crucial core spiritual memory that they look back on as an anchor of hope that you're alive and working in their lives. We submit ourselves to you and we acknowledge that we live in a world that is not always kind to us, where we don't always get what we want, where we don't belong, but we also recognize that we are your elect exiles, that you will provide for and lead and empower and one day call home. And that in the midst of it all, you reign supreme in our lives. And where we find hurt and suffering in the world, would we find healing and peace within your body, the church. How we love you and thank you pray these things in the name of the Father who calls, the Son who saves, and the Spirit who sanctifies. Amen. Amen. God bless you. If you do have questions about baptism, would you reach out to us? We would love to, uh, we'd love to talk through that. And would you pray this week for VBS? We begin tomorrow evening. We're excited and uh, excited to share with you some of the VBS stuff next Sunday. God bless you. We'll see you next time.